This is the American Association of Orthodontists, The Business of Orthodontics Podcast, Episode 4. Welcome. I'm Pam Paladin. My guest for today's podcast is Kevin Dillard, the AAO's General Counsel. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you, Pam. In our first segment, Kevin will be talking about patient records and record keeping. And our second segment will be a review of some of the most frequently asked legal questions. We'll start uh, out with patient records and record keeping, and let's just figure out what kinds of patient records there are, Kevin. Pam, there are two broad categories of records. When orthodontists call and they ask about the preservation of records, when they talk about a patient request or a parent request to get records, what they're typically referring to are the what I'm going to refer to as the health records. And those are the PAN, CEPHs, X-rays, the notes that you as a doctor take about a patient, basically all of the records that deal solely with the health of a patient or the diagnostic, uh, the treatment models, that kind of thing. There's also financial records, and those are a completely different category. They, different laws, different regulations apply to those financial records. And in terms of record keeping and, and the health of the patient, the financial records are something that we don't want probably to spend a whole lot of time talking about because the real main focus here is the health records of the patient. It must get a little bit confusing now for members. We're, we're kind of in that transition period between hard copies of everything and electronic copies, paper and plaster. Have the regulations caught up with the technology? Do people know what they're supposed to do with paper records versus e-records? It's pretty much a patchwork of laws and regulations right now, Pam. I, I think it, they are slowly catching up. When, when it comes to records, the AO's advice is that the only thing you need to keep in hard copy of an actual signature is the patient financial contract and the informed consent. All of the other documents that relate to the health of the patient can all be electronic. Now, when it comes to plaster models, study models, the general rule of thumb is that if you can show in a court of law, the same level of detail in electronic record, say a 3D model or something like that, that has been generated by a computer that a physical model will show, those are typically accepted as uh, appropriate evidence or allowable evidence. But it's not just the laws and regulations, it's also the different legal jurisdictions. Some courts can, even in the same state, when you're talking about different federal jurisdictions, when states are divided, have different rules on what can be admitted into evidence. And it's always a good idea if you're looking at a stockpile of uh, physical models, when you're looking at the, the practicality or the advisability of taking those plaster models and turning them into electronic copy for either ease of storage or for cost or anything like that, always consult with a local attorney to make sure that digital models that you get before you destroy the plaster models are going to be allowable as evidence in your jurisdiction. It sounds like members really need to really think ahead when it comes to records to make sure that if there ever is a dispute with a patient, they're ready to prove what they've done to improve the health of that patient. Absolutely true, Pam. There are a number of reasons patient records should be kept and maintained. Only one of those is a malpractice claim. You're also looking at just the patient health and making sure that if that patient goes on and then comes back five, six, even 10 years after treatment, ideally, if you still have those records, they might have an issue. You can look back and see the history of the, the patient, what their progress was throughout treatment. Many times, if they're adolescents, you're going to see growth and you can see perhaps problems later on or that could be prevented in that growth. And that's going to help the patient even later on. There's also unfortunate circumstances that pop up every now and then. And that's when you have a tragic event where 
a former patient can only be identified via dental records. You as the orthodontist have the ability to have those records and it, it does happen, unfortunately, every once in a while where an orthodontist can step forward with dental records to positively identify a victim of an accident. What if someone comes to an orthodontist, health records are made, and then that individual decides not to pursue treatment with the orthodontist? Does the orthodontist still need to take and keep records on this individual? Absolutely. And absolutely, yes, regardless of whether they charged for the diagnostic treatment records or anything. And the reason for that is, is that even if the patient doesn't decide to continue with treatment and they move on and they are having treatment with another orthodontist or a dental professional and something goes wrong with that treatment, you have proof as the orthodontist who saw them that you didn't miss a diagnosis, that you can show what they look like when they came in and when they left your office and that you didn't do anything to cause any harm to the patient later on down the road. Because even if you just examine a patient without doing anything further, without even suggesting a treatment plan, you are still a doctor in the chain of treatment in many states and many jurisdictions. Because you have, even if you didn't propose a treatment plan, you still have a duty to diagnose things that you are by license have a duty to diagnose. Oral cancer, even cavities, gum problems, periodontal problems. All of those things, when you take, when you undertake records and you examine x-rays or pans or cefts or CBCT scans, you have a duty to diagnose. So if a patient then goes on and, and, and a problem occurs, then you have absolute positive proof that you didn't miss anything. But what if you did not take x-rays or anything like that? If it was strictly just a visual exam, are you still obligated to keep records in that case? Absolutely. Even if it's just notes, I would, I would keep the records. Kevin, members often ask about how long it's necessary to keep records. Is there one good answer to this question? There is, Pam. The answer is forever. Forever. <laughs> forever. Now, understanding that's not always practical. There are at least three layers of analysis that you have to go through when you're thinking about getting rid of records. And I understand you have many orthodontists who have been in practice for 30, 40, 50 years, and they literally have a mini warehouse that stores a lot of the records. And they call and they say, when can we get rid of these things? There's no real good answer to that because you have not only the state dental board regulations, which may say, uh, which may prescribe a specific number of years after treatment concludes that you have to keep models. There are also state principles of ethics, either through the ADA. The AAO simply says in its principles of ethics that records must be kept for at least as long as it is required to satisfy local jurisdictional rules, and at least for that, uh, the statute of limitations, which most people zero in on the statute of limitations. When can I get sued? Because if I can no longer get sued for this treatment, then I'm going to get rid of the models because it's less expensive to um, maintain. The problem with the statute of limitations, actually, there are a couple of problems with the statute of limitations. Number one, most states will say that the statute of limitations, or in other words, the maximum amount of time after treatment that a patient can sue you is something like two or four years. And it's usually told or delayed until the patient reaches the age of majority. In most states, that's 18. So if you conclude treatment on a 16-year-old, that statute of limitations does not begin to run until they're 18. A further problem with that is that, and by the way, Pam, you would think, well, okay, then that means if it's a two-year statute of limitations, when that patient turns 20, then you can destroy the records. Not so, because most of the time, those states will also have a tolling statute, which means that it's also told or delayed in case of fraud or deception or uh, fraudulent concealment 
by the orthodontist. So let's take, for instance, a patient who, let's take our 16-year-old who concluded treatment at 16 years old. And when they are 26, 27, 28 years old, they start developing TMJ problems. And they say that, and they get a very clever plaintiff's attorney who says, well, it was your orthodontist who did that. And he knew, he or she knew that that treatment plan was going to be likely to cause TMJ problems, and they fraudulently concealed it from you. So we're going to go back and sue that orthodontist, and we're going to get around this statute of limitations by saying they fraudulently concealed the fact that what they did to you was going to cause a TMJ problem. That argument in most states is likely to defeat that statute of limitations, or at least is actually not defeating the statute of limitations. It's, it's using it appropriately. It's saying that you fraudulently concealed that problem. So therefore, the statute hasn't begun to run until they figure out that you fraudulently concealed something. So it's complicated. Another issue with that is that by the very nature of orthodontic treatment, there's often never a specific date that treatment concludes because you have a very long retention time. Well, the statute of statute limitations is sort of, most of them are written contemplating what most people typically think of a medical procedure. So a hip replacement. There's a specific date when that hip replacement happens. It doesn't happen over an 18-month or 24-month period. Orthodontics often happens over at least a two-year active period and then retention for long after that. So many states would say that, let's take that 16-year-old who finishes active treatment at 16, but then is in retention until she's 19, active retention at least. So in that case, the statute, even if there's no fraudulent concealment, the statute would not begin to run until the very last retention appointment that you have with that patient. Now, again, a, a clever plaintiff's attorney might wait until that patient is 22 years old and hasn't seen the orthodontist for maybe even two or three years. They develop a problem and they say, we're going to defeat that statute of limitations very easily. We're going to call up your orthodontist and say, hey, doc, I've got a question. Can you see me? I've got a question about uh, my retainer. I think one of my teeth is maybe uh, drifted just a bit. Can you take a look at it? And she comes back into your practice to take a look at it. If you never sent termination paperwork to say that our doctor-patient relationship has now concluded, that statute of limitations has just begun to run again because that was a retention visit. Most states would interpret the statute that way. So it's just not as easy, Pam, as saying, well, the statute of limitations says two years after they reach 18, so therefore when my patients turn 20 and I haven't seen them for at least two years, I'm going to throw away all the records. A lot more complication to that story than what would meet the, meet the eye, which is why the AO says, ideally keep those records forever. Could you tell me a little bit more about concluding the relationship? Is this just a, a nice letter that an orthodontist would send to a patient and say, you know, thanks, uh, but we're done? In a, in a friendly situation, yes. You know, there's always the case where you have to terminate, and we've, we've talked about that in prior episodes of this podcast. In, in a friendly case where you have everybody ends it on good terms, you see the patient for their last retention visit and you say, it's been nice knowing you, happy for all the referrals you've given me. We are concluding the doctor-patient relationship and I'm going to send you a letter that confirms that. And you go to your office and you type up or you customize your template that basically says, it's been great. You've been a fantastic patient. I thank you for all your cooperation and I'm just been happy to be your doctor. And as of today, March 31st, whatever, we are going to consider the doctor-patient relationship terminated or concluded. Concluded is a nicer, nicer way to say that. So we've talked about patient records, and, and basically uh, it's probably a good idea to keep them forever. But where should they be kept? Are they kept in the orthodontist's office, or is it some point that it's okay to, to store these off-site somewhere? The requirement is that they be kept safe and secure. 
So whether that is done in the orthodontist's office or off-site at a storage unit, as long as you take reasonable measures to make sure that those things can't be stolen or copied by somebody who might be wanting to sell information or gain information on any of your patients, or anybody who's not connected to your practice or looking at those records for the interest of the, the best health of the patient. So it doesn't really matter as long as you secure those items. I'm thinking back to Katrina a few years ago and all the destruction that, uh, that came with that. W- what happens in the case of an act of God if, if the records are destroyed? Typically, state statutes or dental board regulations will, will handle that, and there's really no one way to, to answer that question. Usually in an act of God, insurance companies will come in and you're going to have insurance coverage for that. If in the worst case scenario, you have malpractice claims that come up against you with, uh, in, in a situation, not just a Katrina, maybe even here in the Midwest, we, we think of tornadoes or fires as being more prevalent. You know, there's nothing you can do about that. You can always take make your best effort to make sure that there are duplication of records. That's one of the benefits of digital models. You can always store them in a cloud so that you're protecting them from uh, being destroyed, at least to the most that you can. So, you know, when it comes to those physical documents that are destroyed, there's not much you can do about it. The insurance companies step in and, and, and help you out. It sometimes depends on your insurance policy. Let's talk a little bit, Kevin, about who owns patient records. And I'm thinking in particular of parents who might say, well, gee, doc, I I paid you for these records on my child, but I want to go get another opinion from another orthodontist. Does the parent own the records or does the orthodontist own the records? Well, it depends on what you, how you define uh, own and records, I suppose. It, you have an obligation. You, the, the doctor owns the original records that were that were kept, and, and you should always keep the original copies or the originals of whatever record that you took that's being requested. You are obligated, and, and the HIPAA laws really changed the relationship in this regard 10, 15 years ago when they were implemented. The medical record of a patient belongs to that patient or the patient's parent or the, the guardian, and you are obligated to turn over copies of any record that you took on those patients. Now you can charge a reasonable duplication fee, and that includes not only the material it takes to actually copy, but uh, copy or leasing or whatever. If you have to have, go back to a lab and get a, a a plaster model redone or something like that, you can charge for those fees. You can also charge for reasonable staff time that was put into copying those those records. So, Kevin, what we've decided then uh, in this podcast is that orthodontists should keep original records and should keep them forever. Absolutely. At some point, a practice is probably going to be sold when an orthodontist decides to retire. When uh, when that happens and when ownership transfers from one orthodontist to, uh, to another owner, hopefully another orthodontist, do the records of the current and past patients of the practice transfer then to the new owner? That is usually something that is contemplated in a contract. However, I would say that Anytime an orthodontist sells a practice, they should always retain some form of control over those records. If if the purchasing orthodontist buys those records, if that can be done in the state ethically, that's fine as long as the selling orthodontist retains some ability to get those records anytime they need it because that, that orthodontist who sells can always be sued or may have special knowledge when something comes up of a patient that they treated 10, 15 years ago 
that they need to get back and get those records, maybe either to defend themselves or to help that patient. If the patient comes back to them individually and says, hey, doc, I'm having something else done now, or I'm having other dental work, and I'm wondering, you know, my general dentist really would like to see records that you took of me when I was 15 years old. Do you have those? So anytime there's a purchase sale of an orthodontic practice, always retain either ownership of the records of the patients that you that you worked on or at least the ability to get those records when you need to. Sounds like great advice on patient records and record keeping. Let's take a short break and when we return, Kevin Dillard will review some of the most frequently asked legal questions. What makes me smile? Cheeseburgers make me smile. My kids make me smile. And I like to smile thanks to my orthodontist. My dentist said go to a specialist. Orthodontists have the training, the experience, and the treatment options like clear aligners and braces. For my best smile. Now, my smile makes me smile. For your best smile, find an AAO orthodontist at mylifemysmile.org. The American Association of Orthodontists. Welcome back to Episode 4 of the Business of Orthodontics podcast. I'm Pam Paladin with Kevin Dillard, the AAO's General Counsel, and we're here to discuss some of the most frequently asked legal questions. Kevin, uh, let's talk about HIPAA, one of uh, orthodontists' favorite topics, I'm sure. Are all orthodontists subject to HIPAA in the United States? Pam, you're only what is considered a covered entity under HIPAA, which is a federal law, if you communicate electronically with insurance companies about the benefits or payments of the patients that you're seeing. And by electronic communications, I'm not talking about telephone or fax. I'm talking about actually emails, email communications. If you do uh, queries over the internet for insurance benefits to see what kind of benefit a patient has or prospective patient has, that would be an electronic communication. If you take your claims, paper claims, bundle them, and then send them to a third-party administrator who then takes all of those claims and then transfers them to an electronic form and communicates to the insurance companies for you, that would also make you a covered entity, even though you're not doing it yourself, your agent is. So only in those cases, and and anecdotally, I I know a growing percentage of orthodontists are covered entities because they're doing this more and more, but I, I would say probably yet it's only a bare majority maybe at this point, because a lot of orthodontic offices, so far as I know, still communicate over the phone with insurance companies because they don't typically deal with insurance companies a lot, or at least as much as a traditional medical office would, or even a general dental dental office would. They take the paper claims, they send in the paper claims, and they receive the reimbursement via paper check. So only if you communicate over email with insurance companies. I'm kind of surprised, Kevin, that telephone isn't considered an electronic form of communication, but that's that's our government. How the the government defines it, that's right. What kinds of special provisions are there that are relative to HIPAA then and electronic communications? So if you are a covered entity under HIPAA, you fall under what is called the electronic communications or the privacy guidelines for electronic communications. And you have to take safeguards to protect the kind of protected health information that is being sent over the internet. And that could be emails to insurance companies. It could be emails to other dental providers. It could be emails to labs that you're working with. Now the government and in all of its wonderful helpfulness, the last guidance they gave to determine what what appropriate safeguards that you need to put in place for email communications was something in 2009, I think. And I'm going to paraphrase. And it basically said, when determining what level of protection you need to use for your 
internet communications in transmitting protected health information, you need to examine the type of information being sent, the frequency with which it's being sent, who it's being sent to, and then consider appropriate safeguards and document your decision. What that means, I have no idea. There are approximately 10,000 or so orthodontists in the United States. That means it could be a different answer for 10,000 different orthodontists. The AO is working with a couple of email communication vendors right now that in, in zeroing in, trying to find one that can, at least to the extent that they can promise, that the service they offer is HIPAA compliant. Kevin, if you are a covered entity under HIPAA, what kind of paperwork is needed for the office? There are several documents that you'll have to have as a covered entity. All of these, by the way, are on the AO's HIPAA Guide to Patient Privacy Rules, which are online, and they can be customized, downloaded and customized for your, your practice. But generally speaking, the, the most important is what is called the privacy notice. And that is the statement that your office is HIPAA compliant. It sits forth your rights and responsibilities as the orthodontist, and it sits forth the rights and responsibilities of the patient. That, that's typically the form that most patients are familiar with when they go into any dental or any medical office and they sign their, their HIPAA privacy notice. You want to have a copy of that available in your lobby, either posted up near the waiting area or near the sign-in booth or just a, copies available so that they are able to be seen by patients waiting in the lobby. You'll want to have business associate agreements signed with any vendor that you work with that is not directly in the chain of treatment, or it's not a, a dental, another dental professional or medical professional in the chain of treatment. So in other words, labs that get protected health information and are creating products for you. Attorneys who may be seeing protected health information but are not obviously working on the patient. Accountants, a few other folks perhaps that might be seeing that protected health information but are not actual medical professionals working with the patient. If you're Speaking strictly to the general dentist or a pediatric dentist or an oral surgeon, and you're transmitting information between your office and their offices, you don't need a business associate agreement signed with those offices. You'll need a privacy policy, which again, all of these documents are in the AO's guide. Privacy policy is just for your office. You don't have to make it public. You do need to make it available if somebody asks. If a patient asks to see the privacy policy, you'd need to produce this. And it's typically a seven to 10 page document that sets forth all of the office procedures talking about how you're going to adequately protect patient privacy. You want to, to name a privacy officer, typically somebody on your staff who is in charge of enforcing the HIPAA guidelines. You want to probably on a yearly basis have a staff meeting, a training to go over those policies and just make sure everything's being followed. It's never a bad idea too to seek out courses, local courses by uh, well-known and respected consultants to talk about some of the things that you need to be aware of with HIPAA and some of the even some of the, the regulatory law that is coming about that, that kind of shapes how different portions of it are interpreted. And then you also, uh, depending upon the, the circumstances with the patients, if you're depending on how you're using their information, there's also something called an authorization form. So if you want to use a patient picture to post up in your waiting room, like before and after, you want to have the patient sign that because that is their protected health information that you're displaying. If, if you're going to use their information as part of a lecture or research or marketing, you need to have that privacy authorization signed. That's not part of the informed consent? That is not part of the informed consent. And, and often patients and, and even some orthodontists get confused between the informed consent and some of these HIPAA documents. They are to be considered absolutely separately. It's, it's two different issues. 
A lot of times the doctors want to combine the documents. Not a good idea. HIPAA is a completely different concept, completely different set of goals and structures than is the informed consent. This privacy policy sounds like a a wonderful member benefit for members to be able to download and use in their practices. Absolutely, and and it's completely free to members. That's great. As are the 20 most frequently asked legal questions, which are also found on aaoinfo.org, and that's in the legal and advocacy section. And that is a wrap for episode four of the AAO's Business of Orthodontics podcast. Thanks to Kevin Dillard, AAO's general counsel. Join us for future podcasts as AAO experts explore questions and issues that are important to you in your orthodontic practice. If you have subject areas you'd like to have addressed on a future podcast, please email those to info at aaortho.org or call us at 800-424-2841. This is Pam Paladin. Thanks for listening to the Business of Orthodontics podcast, Episode 4.